0: the honeybee in the springtime they're easily found and can make great subjects for our digital cameras today we'll learn a ton of information about honeybees from a local beekeeper that will give us a much better understanding of this valuable cog in our ecosystem hi this is terry Vanderhein, professional photographer and your host of the nature photography podcast I traveled a few towns away where I live to meet with Ronnie Brega from Oaktown Bees. And she was kind enough to spend the afternoon with me, enlightening me to the world of honeybees. I asked her how she got started on this path of being a beekeeper.
1: Um, I was a docent at the uh, UC Berkeley Botanical Garden and we had an observation hive there and I was fascinated with being able to explain honeybees and native bees to visitors to the garden. And uh, a friend of mine started beekeeping, put a hive in my yard, a couple of hives in my yard, and I would help her harvest honey and look for the queen and, you know, do beekeeping duties. And knowing that I kind of always wanted to do it myself and uh, started um, changing my garden to be more pollinator-friendly, and uh, I've been doing it about seven years.
0: Bees are indeed a keystone species. We as humans need honeybees to keep our plants thriving. By that definition, a keystone species is one species that plays a major role in the ecosystem. With the removal of a keystone species, it could create a ripple effect across the ecosystem where the whole system could collapse. The term keystone species comes from the field of architecture and the building of an arch. The keystone is the center stone at the top center of the arch that if it were to be removed, it would cause the entire arch to fall down. The bees take on this role by pollinating our plants that we enjoy and consume every day. Without plant life flourishing, we as humans would have a very difficult time surviving. It goes like this. The bees land on a flower plant to gather nectar. By doing this, they gather the pollen that sticks to the hairs on their bodies. Then they fly over to the next plant and bring some of that pollen with them, thereby pollinating that plant. The honeybees also bring the pollen back to their hive to use it in feeding their young and supplementing their diet. The bees, while wearing this pollen sweater, run into other bees in the hive and crisscross cross the pollen from one bee to another. Those bees then go out and land on different plants, thereby creating cross-pollination that will maintain the genetic diversity of the plant community. At some point, the bees go out to specifically gather pollen for the hive. In this case, the bees brush the pollen from their bodies down to their hind legs in what is called pollen baskets. These baskets will collect and hold pollen until the bee gets back to the hive. When the baskets are full, the bee makes her way back to the hive to dump off the pollen and then back out for another haul of pollen. The bees consume the nectar as their carbohydrate, and they consume the pollen as their protein for a balanced diet. In fact, honey is mixed with pollen to form sort of a bee bread that is fed as a first meal to a new emerging bee. So there's a real danger of honeybee colonies collapsing. So I asked Ronnie her take on keeping honeybee colonies safe.
1: So here in the West, especially here on the coast, we have a Mediterranean climate, uh, which is perfect for a diversity of species, plant species and pollinator species. And we're able to grow plants all year round. What we plant in, in our gardens is very important to all pollinator species. And as long as we have plants that will bloom all year round, we don't use pesticides, we don't use fungicides, um, we don't use herbicides, we can keep our pollinators healthy. Now, rural bees, sort of owned by the commercial beekeepers and by farmers, are really the ones sort of in danger. A lot of those bees are put on flatbed trucks and moved all over the country. It's not really that healthy for the bees. The forage that the bees are asked to pollinate only bloom for a certain time. And then there's nothing left. A lot of the farms and a lot of the orchards have no weeds and no backup flowers for the bees to use as forage.
0: Do they do that on purpose to make sure that they're just Pollinating the almond orchards or whatever
1: they call it? It's that. Right it's also trying to keep the quote weeds down so that they don't use up water and resources. The almond farmers in California, for instance, hire two million colonies of bees every year. They come in the middle of February to pollinate the almond groves.
0: Two million colonies. That's right.
1: That's right. We have oh one million acres of almond trees in the central valley and so those bees have to be awake and have to fly those queens have to start laying all, be- all in the winter all before there's really any forage for them
0: where do they do that
1: interestingly there are a couple of ways that that's happening the newest thing that's happening is that in texas and i believe arizona they have overwintering sheds That are kept at a very low temperature so that the bees will hibernate and won't fly and then when it's time to wake them up they will increase the temperature of these sheds
0: so if they don't fly then they don't need the food they don't need the food that's right
1: that's right and that's how bees that's one of the the mechanisms that bees use when they live in minnesota or canada or alaska or these colder northern climates. Um, They really are a southern climate insect and they get pushed you know outside their normal area and there are lots of things that beekeepers do to keep them healthy during the overwintering process. Another thing that beekeepers do is the, the beekeepers who live in the upper Midwest will drive them to overwinter in central California out in in yards that have a lot of uh, plants that those bees can live on. Often eucalyptus, um, for instance, can bloom early, but they will also feed the bees with um, sugar and artificial pollen to get them stimulated enough to create a large enough colony that the farmer will feel like he's getting his money's worth.
0: So what is the life cycle of a honeybee? I asked Ronnie, how does all this work?
1: the colony's queen will lay an egg. In 24 days that egg will pupate into an adult bee and then emerge out of its cell having eaten through a cap that is made out of pollen and honey. Once that bee emerges she cleans her cell, she um, starts find food, other bees will come and feed her, and then she goes through a series of hormonal changes that allow her to do different jobs in the hive. One job is um, creating wax and having it extrude out of her body. Another is to extrude bee food for the queen out of her head. Um, She takes care of her sisters. She will at some point build uh, wax the wax combs. She will at some point become an undertaker bee, meaning she will take the dead out. She will at some point uh, be a forager and so you know she will do her orientation flight and then she will go out looking for pollen and nectar. Uh, At some point if you have a really healthy colony the queen will lay drone eggs. Those drones, their only job is to mate with a queen from another colony. That's their only job. The girl, his sisters will feed him and take care of him. And then when he gets the hormonal clarion call, he will jump out of that hive and find what's called a drone congregation area. And that is up high in the sky. It's like a singles bar for bees. A queen will arrive up in that space Her hormones are being emitted through the air. Drones from the area will all congregate up there looking for her. She can be mated up to about 20 times. Each time she is mated, the male dies. So he's done his job. He's left his parts in that that queen bee and he drops dead. Another bee comes in, removes those parts, inserts his and the cycle goes on. So a queens mate once. So when a queen is born, she knows she's a queen. She has been given special food. She's bigger than, than the other girls. And uh, after a few days after her birth, she will then find that drone congregation area, come back to the colony and start laying eggs.
0: With, uh, with her mom essentially in there?
1: Sometimes, yes. Sometimes a new queen is created because mom is too old and weak and not producing enough eggs. Sometimes uh, the colony is getting too big, usually this happens in the spring, and so the bees know it's time to create a swarm. So they will create queen cells and, and once one of those bees, one of those queen cells pops open that brand-new virgin queen will go and sting all of the other queen cells to kill them because she was first.
0: Oh, that's brutal.
1: Yes, it is. And then, so now you have a colony with a mother-daughter. At some point, the mother will take the swarm out, and usually half of the colony will go out with her.
0: The lifespan of a queen can be about five years, where the lifespan of a worker bee can only be six weeks. During the last three weeks of their lives, they become the foragers, the bees that we see most often visiting the plants in our gardens. One of their jobs is to swallow up nectar and then they start processing that in their bellies. When they get back to the hive, they regurgitate that processed nectar to yet another bee who also processes it even more. Then that bee regurgitates it once more into a cell A honeycomb and seals the top of it with wax. That's where honey comes from, and storage like this can last a very long time. That honey is the food that the hive survives on during the winter when they can't forage for fresh nectar and pollen. An interesting fact is that those forager bees don't keep track of how much honey the hive has created. They only know to keep going out and bringing home more nectar and pollen. Over time, the hive has an abundance of honey because they usually make much more than they can consume as a hive. So that's where the beekeepers come in. They can harvest a portion of that honey without damaging the inner workings of the colony of honeybees. The honey can be kept for a long time as it has a tremendous shelf life. Honey is also linked to helping people with allergies. For instance, if you were allergic to, say, an acacia tree or acacia blossoms, By eating honey from the area where the bees collect from, the acacia trees, you would essentially be microdosing on acacia to start to gain an immunity towards defeating your allergy. When I got to the hives that Ronnie keeps a watchful eye on in Oakland, California, there was a daily ritual that occurs called the orientation flight.
1: What happens in the middle of the day, usually what I have found, it's the warmest part of the day. Or like what happened today, we had a very foggy morning and then the sun came out. So, remember I was talking about the age of the bees at about three weeks old, from emergence to being able to fly at about three weeks old, those bees will decide that it's time to, their hormones are telling them it's time to go out and forage. But they can't just run out of the hive. They have to orient. They have to set their little head GPSs. So they have to, they take a look at the front of the hive. They look around at their sisters. They look at what the entrance looks like. They look at the other hives and where everything is. Then they start, they learn how to take off and land. And then they start doing figure eights up in front of the hive and up above the yard so that they can swear the trees what are those what's that over there what's this over here and they orient to that colony so that they can and they orient the smell so that every time they come back with a load of pollen or nectar they know which colony is theirs
0: Along with honeybees that are many times being kept and supported by beekeepers like Ronnie, there are native bees out there that also go out to all the same good things that honeybees are doing.
1: Okay, so the native bees evolved to use the plants that are native to this space. The Ceanothus, for instance, the bay, you know, the Clarkias, the poppies. A lot of those plants are popular with honeybees too. And so the question is, if if you're do you know if the honeybees are taking all the pollen and nectar, do the native bees get any? And if if um, the native bees don't start getting active until early spring, the queens overwinter, but they don't have a colony. Uh, they they will overwinter. They wake up, they go mate, they start laying eggs, um, but there is no colony. They don't take care of their brood. Bumblebees do. Now, that, that's different. Bumblebees do, but your mason bees, your carpenter bees, your leafcutter bees, your, you know, there are 1,600 species of native bees in California.
0: If you'd like to start photographing honeybees, it's an easy process to find your subjects. Obviously, the weather has a lot to do with finding bees, as they prefer a warmer climate or the warmer part of the day. So in areas that have a defined winter, look for the bees in spring and summer. Situate yourself in an area that has lots of flowering plants that will attract bees. i found it best to sit on the ground and watch what the bees are doing. After a few minutes of observation, you'll see the bees kind of develop a pattern. They'll fly from one flower to the next, digging in to gather nectar. You can also observe them filling their leg saddlebags full of pollen. Since you're shooting close up, your depth of field will be shallow. Even if you're shooting at f16 or 22 your field of focus will be a challenge. It's probably easiest to rack your macro lens out to full magnification and then back it off just a little bit, then leave your focus alone. That way you can lean into the flower to capture the bee portrait. Very likely your autofocus on your camera will not be fast enough to capture the changing movements of a honeybee. What can also happen with a macro lens is that you try to use the autofocus. You might be close to the bee, then the autofocus grabs, say, the stem of a plant two feet behind the bee, and your bee is then way out of focus. By the time your autofocus comes back to the bee, your subject is on to another flower. So that's why I like to shoot manual focus. The strategy is to watch the bees and see which flowers attract them the most. What will attract one bee will likely attract another. Get into position and focus and frame your camera on that one favorite flower. And then wait. It likely won't be long before the bee lands on the flower and you can tear off a few shots. Make sure your shutter speed is elevated as you're dealing with a lot of movement in the camera since you're shooting so close. Also, the plant itself can move around a bit. One product that I've used before that I have talked about before is called the Plamp spelled P-L-A-M-P. This device can be anchored to the ground or a tripod leg and extend out and gingerly clamp the stem of a plant to keep it still during photography. It's made by Wimberly and can be found at their website, tripodhead.com, along with all their other products. The next thing to consider is lighting. I like to use a ring light when photographing insects. A ring light is a flash that attaches to the front of the lens and projects light right on your subject. Without causing any shadows from being back on top of the camera, this flash will be much closer to your subject as well. So you don't have to use it on full power. This will let you balance it better with the ambient light and not make the light look like it came from a flash. You can also take it another step further and use a scrim. A scrim is usually a translucent fabric that can be stretched across the frame or clipped to some stands or a fence to suspend the scrim over your subject. Since you're shooting close up, you don't need to scrim off a lot of area. Maybe two square feet should cover everything you need. You can buy a scrim already in a frame. I got mine from Lastolite called a Tri-Grip Diffuser. It pops out to stretch the fabric and create a diffusion panel to shoot under. This is a simple way to create that soft light that will make your images look a lot less contrasty. You can hold it with one hand or sometimes it's easier to have a friend hold it over your flowers. Or you can suspend it by clamping it to some light stands or, say, another tripod. This will soften the sunlight over your entire subject, the same as if it were an overcast day. Now, without all those shadows, you can work with the beads in almost perfect light. To make it just a little bit better, maybe use a bounce card to bring some light into the underside of your subject. This can easily be done by adding a white card underneath to bounce the light up into the flowers and into the bees. Make a point to try photographing these very important subjects as they forage for their own food and helping all of our plants thrive. If you're respectful to the bees and don't invade their space or keep them from feeding, they're not gonna bother you. They're interested in only getting their pollen and their nectar from flower to flower. Don't interrupt that, and you're not gonna have any bad incidents with the bee. Look to capture the bees with their leg baskets full of pollen and capture them from all kinds of angles. When you get good at that, then try photographing the honeybees in flight. Shooting insects in flight is a whole nother subject we'll talk about someday. Join me in celebrating the most valuable of animals, the honeybee. Taking on the responsibility of raising bees, especially in the unique climate of the San Francisco Bay Area is not an easy task, but it appears to be quite rewarding. I'd like to thank a couple of people that helped make this episode possible. I had the opportunity to go out and photograph at the hives of a friend of ours and she could be found on Instagram at the cleverly named Buzzantine Empire. You could see some of her photographs and also catch a few of mine on her feed. And of course, a special thanks to my guest, Ronnie Brega. You can contact her through email at Ronnie at Oaktownbees, and that's R-O-N-N-I. If you'd like to see some of the photographs on my website, check out imagelight.com and look for the Nature Photography Podcast site. I'll put a link in the show notes for you as well. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to tell another photographer about it. Maybe make a post on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. That would be a great way to tell others about this podcast. It can always be searched for on any of the leading podcast players, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and many others. It is important to include the in the title, The Nature Photography Podcast. It would also be great if you could leave a positive review on any of those platforms. It could really help in keeping this podcast high in the ratings. Until next time, this is your host, Terry Vanderheiden, with The Nature Photography Podcast.